The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Okay. All right, let's get started. Um, so I think what's, what's interesting about light is that it's used in so many interesting ways, whether it's programmed, whether it's not programmed, how it interacts with the world, how there's direct bounce, multiple bounces, different wavelength, modulation of time and space. It's, it's a lot of fun. Like, for example, do you know how a TV remote control works? IR pulses. IR pulses. You know, it's mostly optical. There are other, of course, RF, uh, but the, the LED of the of the remote is sending a code, optical code basically, thanks, uh, over time to the photosensor on the TV. Uh, now, why does it work in broad daylight? Mm. It's a different spectrum. That's not. That's one benefit. Oh, that's not enough. It's looking at differences between light, like peaks. Actual. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you can shine on the on the ceiling. It doesn't work. It's the radiation in time. It has time, so like it has the last. Yeah, it's looking at the current image. Uh, sorry, last one. It has the last image and the current image, so you get difference of like almost or something. Almost. Oh, that's my guess too. So it's it's using modulation. So it's actually running at forty kilohertz. So when it's one, you're sending something 40 kilohertz. When it's zero, it's not sending anything. Mm -hmm. And so the AC component, which is the carrier, is is 40 kilohertz, and then the signal is one or zero. So it can decode in presence of ambient light, because ambient light is mostly DC. But it can't. Well, mm -hmm. So yesterday, mm -hmm. I was watching TV, and all of a sudden my remote for the cable box stopped working, and I thought it was like one of those like. In the wrong mode, but nothing worked. Uh -huh. And then I noticed the TV light was blinking, and I realized uh -huh. I was sitting on the other the TV remote, and it was just blasting. <laughs> and the cable box was just like ignored, like it couldn't, it couldn't figure out. Oh, because you're pressing too many keys. Because I was holding one button right. on the other remote, not right. knowing it. And it so it two different remotes were conflicting with each other. Remotes, yes. Exactly. So you know, it's just a simple principle that we always associate with the TV remote. But can that also be used for photography or imaging? So the single pixel, the, the photo detector on the TV is decoding the signal, but that's basically a single pixel. Imagine if every pixel in the camera was made out of that photo detector that's decoding the 40 kilohertz signal. Okay. Like in your ears, you have pairs that like vibrate at different frequencies. You have What's the analogy there? Oh, like, like so, if you had pixels that were listening for light. Uh -huh. At a particular wavelength, right? Or the various So imagine you have built a camera. So right now I have exactly one pixel, okay, which takes a signal that comes in at 40 kilohertz, and then zero and 40 kilohertz, and zero and so on. So in term, you know, thinking in terms of communication, uh, we have a carrier and we have a signal around that. We have zero, we have 40 kilohertz, right? And it was amplitude modulation, and there was some signal around that. 
how you were thinking in, in, in communication. And if you have some remote control, you send particular hours and nothing in particular. That's as Very simple as Now, I'm on your, so you have your TV you want, you know, the TV is receiving it on forward. Instead of one pixel, imagine every pixel in a camera is able to decode that signal. So this one is best to taking, you know, the 40 kilohertz signal as a, as a, a reference carrier and all comes just one zero, one zero. Right, that's all. Now imagine if I can build a camera so that every pixel has that property. Right? So I'm going to build a camera where every pixel here can decode 40 kilohertz and just pick up what is illuminated 40 kilohertz and ignore what's in the room. So in a typical room like this, like this, fluorescent light, ignore that. This is sunlight. So sunlight, you have a huge DC. And then your TV remote is giving a little bit of signal. And then all the photo detector does is it just clamps it, you know, just the thickness of selection, and it receives that signal and ignores all the DC. Now, can I create a camera where every pixel becomes the same as that? And now I can shine the room with my remote so that the whole scene is being flooded at 40 kilohertz. And in bright daylight, this scene will appear as if it was lit only by the, this flashing LED and nothing else. Okay, is that clear? There's a lens in here, right? Sorry? There's a lens. Yeah, there's a lens and all that. It's, it's a typical camera with a sensor and so on. You know, this point is being focused here and so on. It's the same thing. It shows that the light arriving here is arriving 40 kilohertz, nothing 40 kilohertz, nothing. So. But can you build cameras which operate at 40 kilohertz like this? That things per second. You're from networking, maybe we can build one. Right? So, when are we going to get cameras that look like this? It will happen as the silicon improves and so on. Of course, it's a very simple example of 140 kilohertz. Now, imagine somebody gives me a flashlight that actually runs at 50 kilohertz. And this one runs at 40 kilohertz. Okay? And this particular pixel actually captures the signal across 14 and 15. And in software, it can decide what's the amplitude at 14, what's the amplitude at 15. What did we just do here compared to assignment number one? We have two flashlights on at the same time. And I want to know how this thing was lit. This one and this one. So this is A, this is B. And the image I'm getting is A plus B. But in software, I can decompose and say which part of the image, in, which intensity came because of A and which intensity came because of B. So in software, I can tune between this light source and that light source. Just like I can, on your, on your car radio, you can tune between 99 megahertz station and the 88 megahertz station. So we will tune that on the camera. And once we have that, Imagine cinematography. You put all kinds of lights, shoot a movie, and then go in Photoshop and change any light, any color, any intensity. So again, beautiful lighting. But again, you know some data is really cool. Data, it doesn't matter. Sure. EMC and Cisco and they're wrong. And they'll be happy if you create a picture that people are wrong. 
there's a lot to come. So every time you think about how light interacts with the world, say, how can you use that for me? Is that crazy? Is that kind of like a solar works? Or maybe just like... I mean, 
If the camera is 60 hertz, you could just use a 60 hertz probe and turn it on in one frame and off. On in every odd frame and even off in every even frame. And that alone will allow you to do this subtraction. So the only problem is that if you do a pure subtraction, you're going to subtract very two large quantities, two large numbers. So in the first image you have sun, plus your flash. And the second image is just the sun. And this is very, very small compared to this. So you're subtracting two large numbers and expecting to recover the contribution because of the flash. And that may or not be possible. Yeah. But that's exactly the problem. Communication difficulty. Right? The carriers and the signal is so tiny that's riding in free space over large distances that they use really clever coding mechanisms so that you know your your effectiveness will increase. That's what we want to do. So there are lots of similarities. So I just wanted to think very broad. I know many of you here have very interesting backgrounds you know, in communication and chemistry and interaction and so on. So try to try to make the best of that. Um, so temporal modulation actually is not used that effectively right now in imaging. Uh, the certain projects, I'm not going to go into detail, uh, but they're on that uh, wiki that I sent you. So please add more information there. Add your own experiences, some of the things you're mentioning, some of the projects you're mentioning. Uh, please go and add all those things to those, uh, to those wiki. All right. So sometimes you can't control the illumination, but you can just exploit natural illumination. Okay. So here's a project from uh, Washington University, St. Louis, uh, and what they did was they took webcam images all day long at a given time of the day. So on the on the x-axis you have time of day, so it's dark in the night, then daytime and again dark. And on the y-axis you have day of the year. So those are how many, yeah, I guess <coughs> just day of the year, I don't know how many, after how many days each row is calculated. Um, if the top is 1st of January and bottom is 31st of December, what can you say from this, uh, from this uh, data set? Winter has shorter days. Winter has shorter days, which means where is this camera? It's in the northern hemisphere. <laughs> and you can probably say more about, if you just take the ratio of the smallest day to the largest, uh, longest day, that will tell you the latitude. And because when you're on the equator, the, the, the longest and shortest days have equal length. But as you go away from that, so you know, there are already a lot of data in, embedded in this natural illumination. So this, this, this project is really beautiful. They did all kinds of interesting things. So they, they have hundreds of static, thousands of static cameras, uh, variation over the year, over a day. Uh, they put all that together. Um, uh, they can do really interesting things. Uh, so it turns out, in a, in a traditional lighting, in a, in, a, in, a, in a typical scenario, light is linear. What does it mean? It means that if I have a scene, I light it with particular brightness, a particular intensity of light, I get certain brightness. If I make my light twice as bright, everything will become twice as bright. Okay? As simple as that. 
this is not true at all the intensities of light. When you go really, really bright light, it's not true. The, the world starts behaving in a non-linear fashion. Uh, if, you're, if you have your speaker on your, uh, on your synthesizer, if you, if you pump twice the power to your speaker, do you always get twice the loudness? It only increases from this. Uh, it, it, it tends to saturate. It tends to saturate, and eventually, it, you know, you run into uh, nonlinear behavior. And the same thing is true for light as well. But as far as sunlight is concerned, and the type of world we are involved, everything is linear. So we don't have to worry about it. And because everything is linear, mathematically, it can all be expressed as just linear transforms and linear algebra and so on. That's why linear background linear algebra is, is very useful when you're doing any any imaging work. So they did some very simple things like they took all these images, just did a PCA, uh, uh, just component analysis, and that image allows them to figure out um, the haze and cloud and uh, orientation of the surfaces. So this is St. Louis, and I believe they can figure out that this building is facing one way versus this building, uh, and so on. Just without even analyzing any doing any sophisticated computer vision, just from the sequence of images. Uh, and then they can segment the scene, you know, this is something close and mid-distance, very far away, they can encode that. Um, and they can even figure out where a webcam is, its latitude and longitude. Uh, and um, uh, Robert Place told me that they can do, just based on the sunrise and sunset data set that we saw earlier, uh, they can localize with 50 mile accuracy. Uh, and if you have some seed cameras where you, where you know the locations, then you can interpolate and go down to about 25 miles. And in addition, if you have satellite imagery, so you know how the intensity is changing, then you can go down to 15 miles. Uh, and then the people at CMU, such as uh, uh, Srinivas Narsivan and, and Alusha Froz, they recently did a paper where they can just look at a patch in the sky and if you look at a patch in the sky in, in, in broad daylight, it always has a gradient. And depending on where the sun is, the gradient has a particular orientation in X or Y, the intensity ramp. And that actually localizes the direction of the sun. So now they can look at webcam images uh, and click on the part that you know has shown the sky and they can localize the cameras down to again a few tens of miles. I forget exactly what the numbers are. And uh, they're not even using polarization. If you use polarization, you can get even better because the sky is highly polarized. Um, I have one question about that actually. Do, do normal digital camera sensors or, or film or anything, do, do they have any polarization dependence at all? Uh, an ordinary sensor doesn't, but you can always put a polarization. You can always put a polarization, but there's really no polarization dependence. Even the human eye um, does not have very strong uh, sensitivity to polarization, but there are some results. Uh, and if you talk to Matt Hirsch, he claims he knows he can he can uh, see polarization. He even has experiments where if you see one way, you see one color; if you see the other way, you see a different color. He's shown it to me dozens of times, but I never see the difference. Uh, but he's been able to recruit a lot of people to say yes, they see it. Uh, so, and there are very few actually animal eyes can sense polarization. 
Uh, there's some underwater creatures that can go through each other. So again, they can do the encoding of depth, how far other things are. Orientation of surfaces. So here you can see that orientation of this is different from orientation of that. How, how would you figure that out, by the way? Shadows. Shadows and sunlight. Because some faces will be lit larger than others, uh, depending on time of day. So you don't know how to process it in, a, in an individual manner. You just throw it in a big matrix. Steady PCA and you figure that out. Alright. So let me, s we saw this example last time, so I'll skip that. Let me switch to uh, light fields and talk about our assignment. Alright. So, uh, light fields is one of the most important concepts we're going to learn in this class. And again, realizing that the appearance of the world is high dimensional, uh, not two dimensional. You have a 3D world, you project it on a 2D image, clearly a lot of information is lost. Um, now, if you, if you build a so-called planoptic function, which is what is the set of all things we can ever see? Uh, it was a name actually given by Ted Adelson, uh, a professor here uh, in the early 90s then it turns out it's a very high dimensional world, right? If I stay in one place and think about the bubble around me, I have the, I have the azimuth and elevation of every direction. Just the bubble. You know, the, on Google Street Map, you have a bubble for every location. That's, that's theta and phi. Um, and that's over time and over wavelength. Okay, different colors and, and over time. So that's four dimensional. Now, I can put these bubbles in different places. And every bubble can be placed in XYZ. So, the three additional degrees of freedom. Right? And if you can capture all that information, then you can recreate a movie from any viewpoint at any time, at any wavelength. Right? But it's extremely high dimensional. This is seven dimensional. So, the world is actually seven dimensional. And if somebody built this magical device, uh, you know, it will have, it will have, it will make a major impact. Now we're going to simplify that, and we'll say, okay, for all these bubbles shown in the blue, all the rays are emanating. Um, and if I if I think of any point in the world, and for now we're going to ignore the time and wavelength, okay, it becomes five-dimensional from seven to five because we ignore time and wavelength. I can take a point in 3D, and from that point in 3D, I can think of a direction. And the direction is only 2D, not 3D. Why is that? X, Y, Z for position, but only theta phi for angle. Why is it not 3-dimensional? What would you use the 3rd dimension for? Because the roll along the ray doesn't really matter. All right? So you have your pitch and roll, but the roll can be ignored because the intensity remains the same, even if you have roll. So it's only five-dimensional. Um, but then, the, if you have an occluder here, then the intensity of this ray is different from intensity of this ray. But if you have no occluder, then the ray intensity remains the same. So now actually you can go down to just four dimensions rather than five. 
Okay. So the space of all lines in 3D is actually four-dimensional. If you want to express all the rays, then it's just four-dimensional. Okay. Ax plus by plus cc plus d. Just four unknowns. Now we can simplify that further for the camera world, where we're going to assign the plane of a sensor and the plane of the lens and so on. So that's what we'll see very briefly. Uh, so let's say there is a light field in this room. Rays are traveling from light sources, bouncing around everywhere. If I just cut a plane in midair, I can parameterize that plane as x and y coordinates. And for every point on that plane, I have again the theta and phi. So it just becomes four dimensional. Okay. And that's what we're showing here. The position is S and the direction is theta. So often we will think about flat land. So we'll just think about the plane of the screen as opposed to the 3D world. So in the 3D world, we have XY and theta phi, but in the flat land, we have just the position and angle. So it's just two dimensional. So this is called a, so that was one plane parameterization where you had position and angle. And another common way to think about that is, uh, another common way to parameterize the light field is uh, two plane parameterization. Where you have one plane that has position and the second plane that again has position and a ray that connects those two uh, again represents the ray space. The coordinates for that represent the ray space. So this is called so this is so-called two-plane parameterization, and this is very very, co very commonly used in computational camera and photography. Okay. So let me jump ahead a little bit because of the time left and explain how we're going to do it for our assignment. So we go, remember we're going to create an effect where um, we'll put a whole bunch of cameras or take an array of cameras like this um, and be able to see through uploaders. Okay. And the effect is relatively straightforward. And we're going to do so-called synthetic aperture photography. We're going to create an artificial aperture to uh, be able to see through uploaders. So if you have a point in sharp focus, uh, versus a point that's uh, out of focus, uh, the green point will create a very bright spot. Uh, the red point will create a blurred spot. That means its intensity will be correspondingly reduced or pixel. Now, if you stopped on the aperture, what will happen is that the, the, the green spot will become slightly dimmer because less light is reaching the sensor, but the red spot will also focus also blur in a smaller region. If you go in the opposite direction and have a really, really large aperture, then the green spot will be very bright because it's captured. And a lot of light is being captured, and that will be over here. But the red spot will be highly blurred. Okay. Um, now, building such a large aperture is very challenging. So what we're going to do is create that using an array of cameras like this. And it's the same as synthetic aperture radar, where they use an array of, cam array of antennas to create effectively a much larger antenna. Again, analogies with 
communication and RF and so on. So uh, again, we have a point that so again we're going to we're going to subdivide this lens into multiple apertures as opposed to one large aperture, and that will be effectively created with a set of cameras like this. And then if you sum the images from each of those apertures. That's the same as creating an image with this very large lens. Okay. And for a different point in 3D, uh, we'll correspondingly create a different image. Okay. So how does this work? How are we going to create a effect where um, something that's out of focus effectively uh, it's going to be completely blurred, and uh, we saw that if I, you know, even with the aperture of my eye, uh, which is only about six millimeters or so, if I put an object really close, then I can see the world uh, through this eye, uh, so that this is basically doesn't doesn't impact me. If I if I put a needle in front of me, it gets completely blurred, and that's the same effect uh, we want to see. So. You take an array of cameras or, or camera at uh, different positions, uh, take, collect, say, 25 photos. If you simply take those 25 photos and sum them up, what will happen? So if I just take a camera, and for the simplest view, just make it
question about this. Yeah. Does this uh, set some minimum focus distance? It could. It could, yes. Or, or, or what sets minimum focus distance? Is it the... The field of view is that, for example, if I get really close, mm -hmm. then these cameras can see this guy, but this camera may also see that. Right? So that's... So, so is that the only thing though? Is it just the field of view that sets the focus? Maybe the field of view. Okay. The resolution limits as well. But maybe the Otherwise, the technique can focus on it. Can even focus beyond it. So, first night, it will be good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Because you can, instead of adding them up, I can add them up in the reverse <laughs> minus 5 pixels. Uh, focusing at infinity beyond. <laughs> so this is all we're going to do. But there's, as you, as you realize in your assignment, there are a few things you have to learn. Here I just threw some numbers. You know, shift the five pixels and add. What will end up happening in your case is you'll realize that um, as you put these cameras and take the pictures, you have to figure out what this distance should be. Uh, what the projection of these points are going to be, um, and if you don't use if you don't use kind of some meaningful numbers, you'll never never be able to focus because either your parallax, which is the distance, the change in coordinate as you switch from one view to the other, will be too large or too small. Yeah. Um, and it's very easy to do by just kind of eyeballing it, and by eyeballing it not with camera, with your own eyes. So you can just stand at one place and see if you move by 10 centimeters, do you eventually see the point behind? Right? And in the case of this, this Stanford project, that was a really challenging example of you know, a set of trees and people behind them. You don't have to choose something that complicated. You can choose you know, some set of objects in the front and then some painting in the back. Okay? You want to set up the scene and you want to put some, uh, the best would be to just put a pencil forest. With all fences, with a fence, and then there's a painting in the back. Okay, and then if from any single camera, this painting is occluded. But by taking multiple photos, you can see. Now you can do it on a, on a table. Uh, you can do it in you know, outdoors, for example. You know, there's some trees here. You can see through it. Then choose your choose your situation, and you'll be able to. Um, And there will be more instructions for those. So are we allowed to do it all computationally? A pure software? Yeah. Just OpenGL even or something? Yeah. yeah, but I mean, what's the fun that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfectly fun to do that. Yeah. What's the tolerance for the um, parallelism? So you want, to, you want to be as close to parallel as possible? But we're not going to discuss it here. But as you know that even if you have, for example, if you miss align this camera and go that I'm exaggerating. Then you know that this image to this image is just a pure one model, a pure single pixel direction. Yeah. So you could just fix that mathematically if you want to. So but you should just avoid that for this assignment. Just try to keep it parallel, just put it on a ruler and slide it. So, and again, there's more more information on the on the on the website.